Well, today we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 17, 1 through 11. I want to encourage you to turn there as we read God's Word. Would you stand as we recognize that this is God's inspired and holy Word? 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succo, which belongs to Judah. I'm not sure sometimes how we pronounce that word. It just doesn't sound right in English. And they encamped there between Sako or Azekah and Ephes, Damim. And Saul, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, the shaft of his spear like a weaver's beam. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine's? A Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed. Greatly afraid. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word today, and especially as we think through this encounter between David and Goliath, Lord, help us to put out of our mind maybe the comic book stories of the past. Help us to be prepared to see new things from your word and be challenged by them today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, chapter 17 opens with these ominous words. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. You remember the Philistines? They've been in the background for the entire time we've been studying the book of 1 Samuel. Perhaps you remember the first appearance of the Philistines back in chapter 4 when they killed 30,000 Israelites, captured the Ark of the Covenant, and then took the Ark back to their home cities. You may also remember how in chapter 7, the Philistines gathered against Israel and Mitzpah, but this time there was an entirely different result because rather than the Israelites being self-reliant as before, they humbled themselves and sought the Lord through Samuel. And then God dramatically delivered them from the Philistines. It's important to keep that contrast of those two encounters in mind in chapters 4 and 7 as we move forward in the book. The Israelites were defeated in chapter 4 because they didn't seek the Lord, but they were victorious in chapter 7 because they humbled themselves and asked Samuel to intercede 
for them. And so then we fast forward a decade or so in other chapters that we covered as well, chapters 13 and 14, in that summary of Saul's life, Saul had an opportunity to lead the people against the Philistines. And we were wondering at the time, will Saul make the same mistake of, as Israel in chapter 4 and rely on his own attitudes, his own wisdom? Or will he trust in the Lord as Israel later did in chapter 7? And what did we see when we surveyed his life? We saw Saul, the king that the Israelites had asked for, committed the same sin that Israel did in chapter 4. When he has the opportunity to lead Israel against the Philistines at Michmash, instead of waiting for Samuel to come and intercede on Israel's behalf before the Lord, he violates God's law and sacrifices an offering as he acts as if he were a priest. Now the Israelites, in the very first part of this book, had treated the ark as a superstitious relic. Well, Saul treats the priesthood and, and the offering as, as just an office, just a ritual to perform, a position that he decides he can take away from Samuel and perform himself in a moment of impatience. And as a result, Samuel tells Saul that God has taken the kingdom from him and given it to another. An even worse consequence, because Saul is also the leader of Israel, the nation fails to overcome Philistia. And their great enemy, the Philistines, gain in strength. And so that brings us to this morning's passage. And I hope it, it helps set the scene because that theme of prideful Israel being defeated versus humble Israel being victorious in chapters 4 and 7, Saul prideful, self-reliant, disobedient in chapter 13 versus what we're about to see in this chapter. Well, we see the contrast. That's what we hope. That David is going to be the humble, dependent leader of Israel that we saw result in victory back in chapter 7. We want to see David as a contrast to Saul and what it means to serve the Lord. And interestingly, this scene is set up for us dramatically here in chapter 17 as these two armies face off in a very similar situation as had happened in chapter 13. You know, a, a valley, two armies facing each other, waiting for battle. But there is one thing that is immediately different between these two chapters. You know what it is? It's Goliath. And if you look at him, verse 4 tells us that his height was six cubits in a span. That would mean he was over nine feet tall. The tallest known man to have lived in the last hundred years or so was Robert Wadlow, who measured eight foot 11 inches tall, a little bit taller than Nathan. He was so thin, though, that he had to have leg braces and use a cane because his legs wouldn't support his weight of 440 pounds. Crazy, isn't it? Not so Goliath. Goliath was not only tall, he was big. His armor alone weighed 125 pounds. Children, what's the heaviest thing you've carried? No, for a long time, the heaviest things my kids carried were the dumbbells at our house, you know, 35 pounds, and they would carry it around. Well, 
Then they graduated to 60-pound cement bags, you know, rolling those end over end. Of the, and now Caleb's got to the point where he can, you know, carry these even 80-pound cement bags. But a 125-pound set of armor. Could you stand up in that, let alone move? Well, add to that that in his at least one hand, he carried a gigantic spear that verse 7 says was like a weaver's beam. And, and commentators today are not sure what a weaver's beam was exactly and how much it weighed. But it does sound impressive, doesn't it? Anything with a beam in the description? Well, to me, it sounds like he's carrying around a 4 by 4 right? I showed Hope and Caleb this week a, a video of that, that man, Robert Wadlow, that I was mentioning. It's hard to imagine what a nine-foot-tall man would look like, but he was nearly twice as tall as anyone around him. And it was strangely disproportionate to see Wadlow in the video standing in a group of people who barely came up to his waist, you know, about this tall. You know, and here he is almost twice as tall as the rest of them. Well, that's what I imagine happened. You know, this, this sea of Philistines out there on the other side of the valley, and Goliath who comes through wading through, but you can see him already several ranks back because he's twice as tall as everyone else, coming out shouting at the Israelite army. And in the Hebrew, his words are literally this. It is, am I not the Philistine? One commentator paraphrases Goliath as saying, Am I the one you see before you, this nine and a half foot tall metal clad hulk, this powerful and violent figure? Am I not the embodiment of the Philistines and everything you dread? Well, he was saying to Israel, Come and fight me. I am Philistia. And you, you are Saul's slaves. Do Saul's slaves really want to fight Philistia? Choose a man and let us meet. In fact, he says, choose a man for yourselves. And that phrase, choose a man for yourselves, should have this ominous echo in it because we've heard that a few chapters back, remember? The Israelites choose a man for themselves to rule over them. His name was Saul. But guess what? He's not about to go out and fight with Goliath. If you look at verse 10, when nobody responded, Goliath bellowed, I defy the ranks of our, the armies of Israel. And that's, that, that phrase, I defy, is actually a bit weak because the Hebrew says, I mock, I laugh at the armies of Israel. And of course, Israel have faced greater foes than a single large man. They had faced the walled fortress of Jericho. They had marched around it for seven days. They had faced men and armies in Canaan that seemed so powerful that, that they came back describing themselves as grasshoppers in their own eyes compared to these, these giants of, of people and armies and cities. And only a remnant of Israel had the faith required to overcome these giants that they faced. 
And the rest of the first generation of Israelites perished in the desert because they had the same reaction that the Israelites are having here in 1 Samuel 17. They're paralyzed by fear. They were judging by what they saw with their eyes and not by faith in the God who is the creator of all things. And so Goliath and the Philistines he represented, they are a particular instance of, of a major Bible theme. In the valley of Elah stand the armies, the enemies of God against his people. Just like we see in many other occasions throughout the scriptures. And each time we ask, will this individual, will this group, will this nation trust in God or not? You also face several enemies, which are as real and powerful and terrifying. Death wields its terrible sword, mocks you. Sin threatens to bring you down. Satan himself seeks whom he may devour. And the question is, will you trust God? So Goliath standing on the hillside, mocking the people of God. It's got all the parts, good parts for an epic film, but it doesn't go like a lot of films. You see, this would normally be the part where a deep-voiced narrator would speak the words from Hannah's prayer that we read in chapter 2, verse 10 of this book, and we saw them a few months ago. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. And then as Goliath would be bellowing yet again, the camera would, would pan across the faces of all these evil Philistines across the valley, cast just like a sea of orcs and goblins, right? In the second film of The Lord of the Rings, as they stand outside Helm's Deep and threaten and challenge the people within. And then like any good movie drama, suddenly in the distance we would see a bright light and Gandalf would charge down the side of the mountain on a white horse and he'd be followed by a throng of, of horsemen shouting war cries as the Philistines are routed, right? That's not what we have here. We look at verse 40 and there's a lone shepherd boy who steps forth with his sling. That's not very Gandalfian. But God is a God of the unexpected. He made the universe from nothing. So he could easily cause Goliath to fall instantly dead. He could cause an earthquake to swallow him up, a lightning strike, a tornado, a sudden plague, anything. I mean, we've seen in the Bible times like that. I've often imagined what it would have been like for Goliath to be shouting his taunt and in mid-sentence this, this giant hailstone just comes and falls on his head and flattens him. But that's not how God usually operates. Instead, as the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And His grace is sufficient every day for the struggle. So why not a shepherd boy? Against a nine foot plus tall giant of a man. Why not a sling and a stone? Against a weaver's beam with a spear point that weighed 15 pounds. It's like having a shot put at the end of this bronze javelin or spear. And look at the type of individual that God uses as we look at 
verses 20 through 26. It says, And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him. And enrich him with great riches, and give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So here is the army of Israel, which for 40 days has been too terrified to move against the Philistines that are amassed against them. And, and I want you to let that number 40 kind of roll over you and have the impact it's supposed to because 40 days, temptation, 40 years in the desert, these are often, that number represents God's testing and sometimes his judgment of his people. And every one of these 40 days, instead of a, a people that are becoming more solidified and secured in faith in God, instead, the morale is getting worse. And they're becoming convinced that the power and might of the entire Philistine army is indeed represented by this invincible Goliath. In the midst of that comes David. Who asks the right question? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? If you look carefully at those words, uncircumcised Philistine underscores the fact this is an unbelieving pagan. That's what that is meant to say. And the armies of the living God is a reminder of what? That, this, that the nation of Israel is not just this helpless people. They are an army whose general is the Lord. This is the Lord's army. And they are amassed together under God, so who can stand against them? And David is seeing things correctly, just as you must in the trials that you face. There's nothing so large, so difficult, so impossible that God cannot overcome it in your life. And as we examine those verses, it's slightly humorous that David has to ask several times, multiple times, what shall be done for the man who overcomes Goliath? And he's not asking because he needs confirmation from multiple sources. It's not even so much that he's interested in the reward. His question is revealing his desire to fight Goliath, and nobody's taking him seriously. And the attitude of the people is expressed best in, in verse 28 by David's older brother Eliab who 
or Eliab who accuses David of avoiding work in order to come down and watch the battle. I don't know what went into what seems to be kind of a harsh reply by Eliab. He was present when Samuel had come and anointed his youngest brother. He was probably the one that expected that he was to, to receive the favor of God. I don't know if there's any part of that envy or frustration like older brothers did with Joseph once upon a time in the book of Genesis. Could be that. It could be that David has, truly as Eliab is accusing, uh, made his brother fear that their father's going to be angry or that they're going to lose the flock if he just leaves them to come down and watch the battle. Don't know what's going on here, but the fact is, Eliab is not kind. David comes to the battlefield to bring food to his brothers and take back news to their father. He comes in obedience to his father's instructions. He doesn't forsake the sheep. He finds someone to care for them while he's absent. But you know what? Eliab's accusations are irrelevant anyway. You see, running through them is one theme, which is David's weakness. And that's the real point. David, you're too young, Eliab says. David, you're too inexperienced to consider going against someone like Goliath. Leave this to more competent people. People who actually stand a chance against someone like that. Of course, Eliab isn't volunteering either, is he? He just knows he doesn't want his youngest brother to represent the whole nation because he will fail. That's what Eliab's thinking. So go do your job and stop trying to avoid work. And again, Eliab, judging By sight and not by faith. Verse 31 tells us that eventually King Saul heard of David's interests. David had asked the question enough and around enough and made enough comments that it piqued his interest. And I can imagine Saul initially encouraged by the news, wait, there is someone who's willing to go out against Goliath? He certainly wasn't going to do it. And perhaps he had in his mind someone more like Eliab. So, when Saul's attendant opened the tent door to usher David inside, that would be a good movie scene also. Imagine that Saul's a bit disappointed. Verse 33 simply says that Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. But I wonder in these words if it was even said perhaps with a contemptuous laugh. Are you kidding me? What are you going to do? Go and bite his knee or something? And David's answer is spoken with passion in verses 34 to 36. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. When there came a lion or a bear that took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, I struck him, I delivered it out from his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Does that 
seem preposterous? Well, it's no more preposterous than when Moses told the Israelites not to be afraid to stand firm, and today you'll see the deliverance of God before you, the Red Sea parts. The Lord will fight for you. You just need to be still. That's what he said. No more preposterous than when the angel said at Jesus' birth, fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So God invites His people not to fear in the face of the terrifying. Do not fear the Egyptians because God will part the Red Sea. Do not fear the Romans' death and sin because a baby is born in a manger. Don't fear Goliath. I, a youth, will slay him. And what you don't know about David's answer is that in verse 37, David uses the Hebrew term Yahweh when referring to God. It is the same name that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush. It was the God of Moses who split the sea. The God of Samuel who defeated the Philistines years ago. He will deliver this day. So there was something about David's words. Maybe it was the name of God as he used it. Maybe it was just the convincing bearing of of his conviction, boldness, whatever it is. Maybe it was desperation. I don't know all that went into Saul's decision, but he says, go and the Lord be with you. But there was a slight delay because Saul's failure to fully understand David's gospel is is apparent in that he tries to outfit David in his own armor and weapons. And I'm not sure how to interpret these next verses. I don't think that the issue was that the armor was necessarily too big. The comic book stories of David have him as some five and a half foot tall, thin boy. And we already know that Saul was the tallest, largest man in Israel. And verse 38 says that David put on the armor, which I can't imagine would mean that David, you know, the, the comic book image, even in precious moments, little figures is, you know, you know, David's armor that's all spilling out all over the floor and I can't move. It's. Wait a minute, I don't get that impression here from this passage. In fact, David was probably not too far off in size from Saul. Close enough that it was even a possibility to wear the armor. But I, as, as we look at this, can't you imagine this moment as Saul is taking his own royal armor and putting it on David? Isn't that just a huge symbol and foreshadowing of this transfer of of favor of God from the earlier anointed one to the one whom God would anoint as his king. Without fully suggesting that Saul understood that symbolism, we can see how he is, in essence, passing on the leadership to David. More importantly, as David puts on Saul's armor and moves around a bit, verse 39 says that he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Not that he couldn't fit in them, but he had not tested them. 
which really means he's never fought in armor before. Why would we expect a shepherd who has never worn armor to suddenly go out and expect to be flexible and agile in, in, in something that was cumbersome like that? And we see, though, what is happening. Saul is trying to equip David like Goliath, even like Saul himself. Saul, after all, was the king that was just like all the other nations. He went out in, in battle array with full armor, etc. And he was going to fight strength with strength, weapon with weapon. But that wasn't about might versus might in this encounter. It wasn't about fighting physical weapons with physical weapons. It was about God's people victorious against the forces of evil. And how is God going to accomplish that? Could there be any other way of deliverance from Goliath by David than on God's terms? David is outsized. He is outgunned. And this is the same thing that happens when we are being delivered from bondage to sin and death. We start out already defeated. We are outsized and outgunned. And victory can only be through faith in Jesus Christ's own victory on the cross. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus' greater victory is foreshadowed this thousand years earlier in David's victory over Goliath. So we see the account, the actual battle here in verse 40. He took the staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in the shepherd's pouch, sling in hand, and he approached the Philistine. And Goliath moved forward, preceded by a man who carried a shield that was taller than David. That part seems a bit unfair. Like two against one. It's supposed to be champion against champion, but I do feel bad for Goliath. It would be difficult for Goliath to carry a six-foot-tall shield and at the same time a weaver's beam-sized spear and a gigantic sword. You, you just can't do all, all of those things. So you need a shield bearer. And that's how Goliath is approaching David, Right? Verses 42 to 43, and when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. So far we've seen how everyone just sees with the eye as man sees. The nation of Israel lost morale over that 40-day period. Eliab, who are you? Now go back, take care of the sheep. You're not able to do this. Saul saying, you can't go up against him. Goliath seeing an insult. Finally, the Israelites had responded to his challenge and they sent out their weakest option? Really? Was this a joke? And it's interesting that what Goliath sees is exactly what everyone else had seen. Even Samuel, if you remember. Samuel had first thought it was Eliab who must be the one that God was choosing to anoint as his next king. But Samuel eventually came to see as the Lord sees. 
So this great offense leads Goliath to angrily, as verse 43 says, curse David by the Philistine gods. And I like how a commentator notes that by invoking his idols and cursing David, Goliath signaled the true dimensions of this confrontation. This was not about Philistia versus Israel. It was about the so-called gods of the Philistines against the living God of the universe. And so we read, the Philistines said to David, come to me. And I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Does that phrase sound familiar? Give your flesh to the birds of the air echoes what we find in earlier books of the Old Testament. Through Moses, when God had warned Israel that if they were disobedient, if they, if they strayed from following the Lord, that he would leave them to die in the desert and their bodies would be given over to the birds of the air. It is a phrase that occurs when God describes leaving his people and judging his people. And so imagine what's happening in this, that Goliath is threatening David, but really he is threatening all Israel with judgment and death, the kind that God would bring. Now it would only be by the permission of the true God. But we are left with the question, will God judge Philistia? They have not been faithful. They've been, they have not trusted in the Lord. They've, Saul, in representing them, has not been a model leader. After all, the Philistines are here today because of Saul's sin back in chapters 12 to 14. But thankfully, God is merciful this day because he had chosen a king for himself on whom the Spirit of the Lord had powerfully come. And he, Yahweh, was about to fight this pagan Philistine who dares to blaspheme against him. Don't you love what we read in these verses here, David said to the Philistine, you come at me with a sword and a spear, the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Not I come to you with staff and slingshot. Let's see who has the better weapons. But you come at me with worldly, man-crafted weapons. I don't need any weapons. I come in the name of the Lord of hosts, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down. I will cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day. Notice the reverse, right? to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine on the forehead. It sank in, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. 
Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, took the sword, drew it out of his sheath, killed him, cut off his head with it. Now that may seem anticlimactic, certainly seems graphic. But it may seem anticlimactic because we have 40 days of drama, a giant bellowing, a young man coming out with a sling and stone, and all of it ends with a killing blow to the forehead at the small stone. There was no long sword duel. There's no wrestling match. I'm not sure what that looks like between David and Goliath. Goliath never even does anything towards David. We have 45 verses of buildup, and it's over in four. But I think that's the point. This isn't some 25-minute conclusion to an epic battle where the titans score off against one another and each inflict blows and bring the other to near death until the good guy, nearly dead, is victorious and then is carried home on a stretcher to recuperate for two months. The battle is anticlimactic because there is simply no comparison between Goliath and God. We have this plastic gun at home that shoots salt at flies. Caleb has gotten so good at using it that he doesn't even need to look through the aiming sight. He just kind of holds it a few inches and bing, no more fly. That's how it was with Goliath. Imagine now the Israelites standing in the valley of Elah, the ones who have been cringing, who have been cowering, covering their eyes as they await the inevitable. They didn't want to actually have to watch Goliath kill David, nor did they want to contemplate what slavery to the Philistines was going to look like. How many were in disbelief as they saw Goliath pitch forward on his face, just like the statue of Dagon did? Remember that? When the Philistines took the ark back to their temple and placed it in their tent, and the next day, they, the priests come and find the statue of Dagon pitched forward on his face. And then what happened the second time? The head was removed from the statue. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great imagery between both times. The Philistines did not learn their lesson in challenging the God of Israel. Do you think that maybe there were a few that were moved to spontaneous shouts of praise of God? I do. David told Goliath that he came in the name of the Lord. There was one other of whom that phrase was used when Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a young colt. The people proclaimed, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is the one who came and won a victory that outshines David's. We have more in common with those Israelites in the Valley of Elah than we may realize. And we should also be moved to spontaneous shouts of praise and worship. One last observation. Look at the end of the story there in verse 51 when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead. They fled. And the men of Israel... And Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim 
as far as Gath and Ekron, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. So when Goliath's body hit the ground, it must have been one paralyzing moment as the Philistines took in the loss of their champion. All courage and will to fight were gone. They began to flee, and the Israelites pursued them all the way to Gath. And on the way back, they carted back treasures as plunder from the enemy's tents. And it reminds me of the victory of Christ that we see described in Colossians 2, where we read, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses and wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he has made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it. And that last sentence of he has made a public spectacle triumphing over them, I've gone over this before, so it just is, it's an imagery of a Roman triumph. And in that, the enemy that has been conquered and all the treasure is paraded through the city. And just as Israel returned in victory after their great triumph over Goliath, so Jesus returns in victory in his great triumph over your Goliath. And who is that? Who's your Goliath? Well, most of the time when you read books on David versus Goliath, it goes something along the line of your Goliath, the giants that you face, are the various trials in life. And you've got to overcome them with faith. But friends, your Goliath was death. Your Goliath was sin. And Jesus has already conquered your worst possible enemy. Should you not have faith over every other challenge you face? You see, it's, it's not as if you were cowering without the sense of already having a position and identity in victory in Christ. The enemy was defeated at the cross. Goliath is dead. What you have to look at your life is, is not as facing Goliath. You're being called to pursue the retreating enemy. You're being called to go after the routed armies and to bring down strongholds. Everything else that you face in life has to be has to be evaluated in the face of the victory against Goliath that has already taken place. The giant is dead, and you are alive. So friends, don't let the darkness of this moment in history make you think that you're stuck in the valley of Elah, like Israel, facing down an impossible giant. You're not. God is telling you, pursue the enemy He has a false front. There are times in which he advances forward and he still bellows as if he's still something. But the enemy has already been defeated. And God's people are being called to be faithful, to trust in him, to pursue the enemy, 
Because God raises up the weak to triumph over the strong. And it is now your turn to bring down the strongholds that are left. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercies to us. And the fact that you've already defeated our greatest enemy. And Lord, that was a Goliath-sized enemy indeed. You defeated through the cross death, sin, the devil, everything that truly would have a hold on us. We stand in grace before your throne. We stand equipped with a new name, a new inheritance. And we have been called to be faithful, to trust in you. For you are already victorious as the King of Kings. So Lord, I pray that even as we live today in a difficult time, as we sometimes fear and look at our world and culture and society as, as Goliath, Lord, help us instead to have the perspective that the battle's already been won and that you are just waiting to finish mopping up things, to, to rout the pursuing or the retreating enemy as we take down the rest of the strongholds. Lord, give us the faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.